How does faith relate to science? Now, I, I want to just acknowledge right up front that I'm probably the worst person in the room to talk about science. Um, I, in, in university, I studied uh, history, and I always got low marks in science, um, was kind of a, a humanities guy. My specialization was in surfing, and so um, I don't know much biology here. But I'm going to do my best, and uh, I'm sure there are many of you in the, in the audience who could get up here and talk about science in a way more sophisticated way than I can. But I'm going to give it a shot. And um, there's a lot of questions that people have uh, about Christianity and science. And there's a, there's a typical way that people uh, reject Christianity when it comes to science. They, science. they say this, you know, way back in pre-modern times, uh, people didn't know how to explain things. And so when they heard thunder, they said that was the god Zeus. Uh, when, they heard, when they saw the, the sun appearing to go across the sky, they said that was the god Helios in his little chariot. But now we have scientific explanations for those things. Eventually, we will have scientific explanations for everything. So science is no longer necessary, in fact, to hold to ancient understandings of the world, uh, these pre-modern notions of, of God and the supernatural. These, these ideas are dangerous and regressive. And there's even a story, uh, almost a deconversion story that pastors hear over and over again that goes something like this. You know, I, I grew up in church with a very simplistic view of the world. You know, I believed in things like angels and demons and God and miracles, Jesus and Santa Claus. But you know, I grew up and I learned about science and so I had to shed those superstitious things off. I had to grow up, in other words. And I had to reject my, my religious beliefs in exchange for beliefs about science. In other words, science occupies the territory once occupied by religion. Or to put it another way, you can't, if you're going to believe in Jesus, you've got to reject science. And if you're going to believe in science, you've got to reject faith. Science and faith are mutually exclusive. Uh, we just cannot believe those superstitious things anymore now that we live in the modern world. So what do we say to this? What, what do we say to this dichotomy between science and faith? Well, I want to begin by saying that this is a false, a false choice. I don't think that we need to choose between faith and science. I think the two actually go very well together. And even practically, this is true. And so uh, recently, there was a, a, a poll done by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And this is not a religious body. This is a, this is a scientific body. And uh, they polled their members about uh, the, their beliefs in God. Now, what they found was that it is true that in the social sciences, many people are atheists. There's a lot of atheists in the social sciences. But in the hard sciences, in the, the places where people do research and they uh, you know, are, are looking at test tubes and observing the natural world, that belief in God is actually pretty common. And so they found that 51% of scientists believe in some form of deity or higher power, 51%. Uh, they also found that 31% believe in a personal God. And then 7% said they just didn't know. And what this means is that the majority of scientists, the majority of people in the hard scientists actually believe in God or a higher power. 
And so science can lead people to faith just as well as it can lead people away from faith. There is not a dichotomy between faith and science. You don't have to choose one or the other. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the Bible because you say, well, maybe, you know, people, um, they might believe in God, but uh, does, does the Bible really support science? What does the Bible say about faith and science and how it might fit together? Well, in order to look at that, I want to go to Genesis chapter 1. And, and Genesis chapter 1, I want to just say up front, this is not a science book. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, chapter 1 is not doing science in the modern sense of the world. This is an ancient Near Eastern poem about creation. And so when you look at Genesis 1, there's, there's re- repeated words. Uh, there are, you know, things like, you know, light that happens before the sun and the moon come on the scene. And so what's going on in Genesis 1 is this is a, this is a, a poem, this is a song about the creation of the world. It's not necessarily telling us how the world came into being, scientifically, it's, it's giving us a worldview about creation. It's giving us a worldview about God, who God is and who we are. But I think uh, when you look at Genesis 1, I think what you can come up with is a framework for how we can understand how science and faith fit together. G- Genesis 1, I, I believe, gives us a framework for science and faith. So that's what I want to show you this morning. And I, and I, want, I think that when you look at Genesis 1, it tells you three things about, about science. I think it will tell us, number one, the value of science. Number two, the limits of science. And then finally, the clues of science. All here in Genesis chapter 1. And so uh, let, let me get into this here. So the first thing I think we see in Genesis is the value of science. Because Genesis 1, what it tells us basically is that there's a rational God that stands behind the world. That behind all that we see in creation, there's a rationality, there's a creator God. And so for years, people that believed in Genesis 1, people believed, who believed in creation, were, were motivated to explore the world that God made. And this is why when you look at the history of science, uh, almost everybody agrees that the rise of modern science was in a Christian matrix. It was in a Christian context. And so, long quote, this is Alvin Plantinga. He says this, Modern Western empirical science originated and flourished in the bosom of Christian theism and and originated nowhere else. Some have found this anomalous. Bertrand Russell, for example, thought, that, thought of the Christian church as rep- repressing and inhibiting the growth of science. He was therefore disappointed to note that science did not emerge in China, even though, as he said, um, as he thought, the church, uh, what, let me go back here, he, didn't emerge in China, even though, as he said, the spread of scientific knowledge there encountered no such obstacles as, he, as it did in, the, in Europe. But the fact is, it was Christian Europe that fostered, promoted, and nourished modern science. It arose nowhere else. All the great names of early Western science, therefore, uh, Nicholas Copernicus, Galileo, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, John Wilkins, Roger Coates, and many others, were all serious believers in God. Indeed, uh, the important 20th century uh, physicist C.F. Von Weizsacker goes as far as to say, in this sense, I call modern science a legacy of Christianity. He says that modern science arose in a Christian context, and it's no accident because Christians believe in the book of Genesis. 
And I believe the book of Genesis motivates and fuels the, the study of God's creation. It fuels science. Number one, because it tells us that the world was created orderly, right? Behind the cosmos, there's a rational God. There, there is, in order for science to even be successful and possible, there needs to be a high degree of regularity and order and predictability to the world. And there is that, Genesis says, because the world is created by God. There's a rationality behind the laws of nature. And so C.S. Lewis says, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a law giver. There's an, there's an order to the universe so that it can be studied. Uh, Johannes Kepler said, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order which has been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. So those of you who don't like mathematics, I'm so sorry. God gave it to us. Richard Swinburne says this, I do not deny that science explains, but I postulate God to explain why science explains. The, the, very success, the very success of science in showing us how deeply orderly the nature, natural world is provides strong grounds for believing that there is even deeper cause for that order. And so we do science because we believe there's, there's a regularity, there's a predictability in nature because there's a rationality behind it, Genesis 1. Uh, we also do science, I think Genesis 1 tells us, because God made us in his image. God is a rational God. God is a thinking God. And God has made us in his image. He's made us with minds that can understand the world. Uh, there's, there's a certain fit between our cognitive, fa cognitive faculties and the world in which we live. And so we can think and we can trust our brains because we were made in the image of God. And so we're supposed to use those brains to explore creation. Uh, there's one command in the Bible uh, where, where it says, love God with all your, your mind. God wants you to think. God celebrates science because in science we are using our God-given capacities to understand the world in which we live, the created world that was given to us by God. Uh, also, also you see in Genesis that God gives us what's called the creation mandate. And the creation mandate is when God tells uh, Adam and Eve to go out and subdue the earth, explore the earth, uh, develop the creation that I've given you. So God created the world, and then he puts us in the, wor in the world, and he says, now I want you to go explore what I created, develop creation, all the potentiality that's latent within the world. I want you to go make cities and, and, de and develop technology and do art, right? This is the creation mandate. We are supposed to go and develop the world that, that God has created, and science is a part of this. Notice what God tells Adam to do. He says, go out and name all the animals. This is a, an early form of ta uh, taxonomy, right, where, where he's categorizing uh, everything in the natural world. The creation mandate is a command for us to go out and explore the world and solve mysteries and do science. Uh, Steven Pinker had a, has a little talk, on, a TED talk, that's based on his book, Enlightenment Now, and he says the Enlightenment is it was actually so good for the world. He said that, you know, people armed with modern science went out and solved, you know, uh, 
found cures for diseases and developed technology that makes the world a safer and better place. And I think God would celebrate that as a, as a, as a, an, an a, uh, example of the creation mandate. When I was younger, I, as I said, I, I majored in surfing in college. And so I was, I would never, you know, I never really, uh, valued thinking very much in my younger years, and then I became a Christian, and I remember one of my best friends, he was super smart. He was studied science, and he just was very, very knowledgeable, and I think I kind of resented this a little bit, and so one day I came up to him, and I said, God is not impressed with your knowledge, and then he looked back to me and said, well, God is not impressed with your ignorance, (laughs) and I said, (laughs) touche. He was reading the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis sets in motion uh, the tools for doing modern science, and this is why it's no accident that modern science developed in a Christian context. They believe the book of Genesis. And so in the book of Genesis here, we see the value of modern science. We see that it's good to use our brains and explore creation. And someone says, well, what, you know, what do we do, though, if, if people doing modern science begin to contradict our view of the Bible? I mean, that's, that's a real possibility, right? You know, we're armed with this creation mandate. We go out and we do science. Well, what if our science shows us things that actually differ from our views of the Bible? That's a great question. And I think in many ways, there are things that science has show, shown us that have helped us change our wrong views of the Bible. You know, in times when we believe the earth was flat, science said, no, it's round. Right? And we change our view. We adjust our views our previous views of the Bible. They, were, they weren't right. Hel- Science helped us to adjust our understanding of reality. And so I think we ought to listen to science. And I think we ought to value science and even adjust our views from, from, from what we thought previously when we encounter uh, some of the conclusions that science, science comes to. But this brings us to the second point, which is the limits of science. Because science does have its limits according to the book of Genesis. Science is so valuable, and science is so important. God told us to do it, and yet there are limits to the task of science. And we don't often think about the limits of science, especially in our modern world when we value, you know, technology so much, and, you know, science almost has this this place of authority in our culture that if you disagree with science, you're in trouble. But there are limits to this discipline. Because science tells us about how the world works, which is a very important question. You know, how, you know, how the, the planets you know, revolve around the sun and, and how the molecular structure of the universe works. Science tells us the answers to the question how, but Genesis gives us answers to the question why. And science can't give us the why question. Ultimate questions, why are we here? What is the purpose of life? What is the good? And how do we know how to live the good life? You see, these are questions that science cannot explain for us. Science can explain a lot of things about the natural world, but there, there is territory where science simply cannot, cannot go and does not give us answers for, and it's the question why. And this is an important question. I was listening to... Um, a debate this past week uh, with John Lennox was uh, debating a scientist, and he says, well, what about the why questions? What about the meaning questions? Science doesn't tell us that. And the retort of the scientist was, well, those are stupid questions. 
I don't think those are stupid questions at all. Because you were, you, you were created by God to ask those questions, and you need answers to those why questions in order to live your life. Uh, Jeanette Winterston uh, wrote a, a book with an amazing title. The title is this, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal? <laughs> you got to love that title. But in this book, she makes this statement, we cannot simply eat, sleep, hunt, and reproduce. We are meaning-seeking creatures. We need to know the answer to the question, why? Why am I here? What is the meaning for my life? Yeah, science tells me how the world works, but it can't tell me why I'm here and the difference between right and wrong. There is something about us that makes us actively seek our meaning and see that it is something that's significant. And we're looking for answers to the big questions. We're looking for a big picture that helps us understand what life is about. We want a story that helps us view the world, and that is exactly what Genesis 1 gives us. It's not a science book. It's answering different questions. It's telling us why we're here and who God is, which is a place where science cannot tread. Uh, Jürgen Habermas says this, science cannot provide the means by which to judge whether its technological inventions are good or bad for human beings. To do that, we must know that what a human being what a good human being is, and science cannot adjudicate morality or define such a thing. And even hardcore scientists agree with this statement. So this is Stephen Jay Gould, who is not a believer, and he says, we cannot use nature for our moral instruction or for answering any question within the magisterium of religion. They answer different questions. Science simply cannot adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature, We neither affirm it or deny it. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. What is he saying? He's saying science tells us how, but science does not tell us why. There are two different books. There's the book of nature, which tells us about the world and how it works, but there's the book of scripture, which tells us why. Why we're here. What is the purpose of life? Francis Collins, who is a believer, says this, science is the only reliable way to understand the natural world, but it is powerless to answer questions such as, what is the meaning of human existence? Is there a purpose to life, and what are we here for? We need to bring all the power of both scientific and spiritual perspectives to bear on understanding what is both seen and unseen. So he's saying we need science and we need scripture to give us a full picture of the world. Yes, science tells us about the seen world, but what about unseen things like love and justice and purpose to life? We need religion to give us a full picture of reality. Uh, There's an illustration that one scientist used to describe the different perspectives that science and, and scripture give us. And he said, think about a kettle that's boiling. You guys all still with me here? Okay, a kettle that's boiling. And he says, he asks the question, why is the kettle boiling? One answer is that it is boiling because of energy conversion. Electricity is converted to heat, which causes water to boil. It's one explanation. It's a good scientific explanation. But a second explanation is the kettle is boiling because I wanted to make myself a cup of tea. He was a British scientist. These are two explanations. There's the energy conversion explanation, and there's, there's I want my cup of tea explanation. 
both explanations give a fuller picture of what's going on. Both are true. Both are complementary and not competitive. Each is incomplete without the other. Two explanations that don't compete, they don't conflict, they complement one another, and this is science and religion. Science tells us how, religion tells us why. And they, they can mutually inform one another, they can enrich one another, and to believe that science alone gives us a full picture of reality is reductionistic, isn't it? You know, all, you know, faith is not opposed to science, faith is opposed to something called scientism, which is the belief that all truth comes only from scientific investigation. The only truth there is is what can be put under a test tube. But all of us know that there are things you cannot put under a test tube that are just as true as the physical world. And so you need faith, you, you need scripture to give you a full picture of reality. It is way too simplistic to say that, oh yeah, the only things that we know are what can be known by science. And by the way, that statement itself is not a scientific statement. You cannot prove that statement by science. We all know that human beings are more than just atoms and molecules. We know that there there is more to us than science tells us. We are not less than that, but we are far more. And so, for example, when you look at the book of Genesis, there's this wonderful place where God, uh, he's he's creating everything, and then the crown of his creation is, is humanity, man and woman. And he makes this wonderful statement. He says, God created human beings in his own image, the imago Dei. And so I think, yes, the adic- we are atoms and molecules, but what Genesis tells us is that we are also image of God, which I think gives a fuller picture of who we are as human beings. Walter Brueggemann, who's a com- commentator on Genesis 1, says that there is only one way that God is imaged in the world, and that is humanness which means that we are more than atoms and molecules. There is an objective, irreducible, rock-solid glory and significance to every human being. Through human beings, God is reflected in the world. You are valuable because you reflect God, and science can't tell you that. There's a story of a, a, a this is some, someone told this story. He was a, a resident in a hospital and they were doing rounds one day. And uh, they, there was this woman who was very ill and, she, and on top of her illness, she was also just clinically depressed, just suicidal, miserable. And one of the, uh, the residents, he was, he was, you know, they were doing rounds and they were talking. He says, well, why don't we just go into her bedroom every single day and tell her that she has value and worth that there's an irreducible rock-solid glory and significance to her, that she's, she's a worthwhile human being. He says, why don't we do that? And the, the, the doctor, the head doctor, looked back at this resident and said, you can't do that because how do you know she has value? And then all the, <laughs> the residents started laughing, and he says, no, I'm serious. Science can't tell you that. And we're all scientists here. We're all doctors. Do not push your religious views on her. And it's true, it is a religious view. This is a perspective on the human being we are, we are, that religion gives us. We are more than just atoms and molecules. We are image of God. 
So different than what Bertrand Russell said, he said, man is the product of causes which have no provision of the ends they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of the accidental collocation of atoms. But we know we are more than that. We know that this is not a full picture of the human being. We are atom and molecules, but we are also image of God, and we need Genesis to tell us that. Because Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a public intellectual and a judge way back in the early 20th century, he said, scientifically, I see no reason for attributing a man a significance different in kind to a baboon or a grain of salt. But from Genesis 1, we know that we are different than the, anim- than the rest of the animal kingdom. We are image of God. And this is why we need Genesis, and this is why science is limited. This is why science, although it can explain so much, it is an incomplete picture. It gives us an incomplete picture of reality. Life is complicated. There's a spiritual dimension to life that that science alone can't tell us. And so Marilyn Robinson, last quote on this point, She said this, rationalism and scientism end up imprisoning us within a limited world, diminishing our hopes and expectations and failing to capture what is so important about a human being. Because you were not an accident. And you have value because of your humanness. And there's a purpose to your life. And God created you for a reason. And there's a reason for living. And the world is going someplace. And all of these statements come from Genesis 1. And you need to know this. And so finally, let me get to the the final point, which is I think Genesis tells us that the the clues of science. So the value of science, the limits of science, and then finally the clues of science. Because I think science, as we said at the beginning, can lead somebody ultimately to God. God. You could look at the natural world and conclude that there must be a God. There are clues in the natural world. There there are clues in the universe that are pointers, that point beyond themselves to the fact that there is a, 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 a reason behind all of it. And so all of us know that you can look at, sit there under the night sky and you look up at the stars and you see how vast and how complex the world is and you say there must be a reason for all this. There must be something behind this. And so observing the natural world can lead you to God. And so in Psalm 139, uh, it says this, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. This is somebody looking at the natural world, and they're looking at their own bodies. They're looking at their complexity and their beauty, and they're saying, oh, Lord, it's leading them to worship. I see the natural world, and I see how complex I am, and it leads them, oh, Lord, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Genesis 1 declares the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to to the end of the earth. He's saying that the natural world speaks. 
There's a voice to creation. There's a, there's a blowhorn that's, that's screaming out to you from creation. There's a God. There's a God who, who's, who's brilliant and creative. There's a God who's complex. That's, there's a rationality but that stands behind the created order. Alistair McGrath, who's a, who's a scientist who um, became a Christian. And I talked at the beginning about a deconversion story, somebody who says, oh, I, was, I had a simplistic view of the world, and then I discovered science and I rejected God. Alistair McGrath almost tells the exact opposite story. He says, growing up in Ireland in the 1960s, he says, I was absolutely fascinated with natural sciences, with the natural sciences. He says, they were the love of my life, and, I gave, and to them I gave enormous attention and, and excitement. He says, oh, I loved science. It was just the way I was built. And then he says, I took the view that I thought was necessary to be a scientist, that if you love the sciences, you regard religion as something archaic. And so he says, I love the sciences so much, and I thought that because I was a scientist, I had to reject God, and I couldn't believe in him. He said, mad, bad, and sad people believe in God. (laughs) I wasn't any of those things. I I was a rational, smart human being, and so I thought I had to get rid of religion. And he says, I was absolutely convinced as a 16-year-old that in atheism, and he says, I was very aggressive in my atheism. He says, in fact, when I read Richard Dawkins, who's a famous kind of crunchy atheist, he says, I, ha- I get sort of nostalgic. He says, he said, I was just like that guy. But then he says, but then I went to Oxford to study chemistry. And then he said this, he says, I realized that the simplistic view of science I imagined as a 16-year-old really did not match onto the rather complicated thing that we call the real world. He said, science alone could not explain for me the real world. It could tell me that I was made of atoms and molecules, but it could not tell me that I was infinitely precious image of God. And I know that there's something important about the nature of a human being. And so he said, I had, to, I had to throw off my superstitious science. Oh, not completely. He's still a scientist, and he's, he learned how to put them together. But he says, you need both, the, the book of science and the book of nature to understand reality. And so let me try to apply this, this sermon today. Um, I know there were a lot of quotes, but I want to encourage you to do something. If you're not a Christian, and maybe you're someone who's unlike me, you're smart, you're scientific, and this is just the way you work. This is the way that you're wired. I want to encourage you to, to do some research because there, there's just a lot. I mean, this week I was overwhelmed with, you know, TED Talks and, and video lectures given by. There's a lot of books and lectures out there that will help you bridge the gap between science and faith. And there's a lot of very smart people that have embraced Christianity, If you are a Christian here today, I want to encourage you to explore the natural world. You know, maybe you're not scientifically minded. I want to encourage you, maybe even tonight, if it's not raining, (laughs) to go out and look at the night sky and just observe creation and see if that might lead you to worship. My little son, Luke, just loves nature. He's always looking at bugs and uh, looking at, you know, animals and things like that. And I'm so unlike that. I'm always up in the clouds thinking about, you know, some, you know, idea or something. I've just never 
concretely here in the world, I want to encourage you to observe the natural world, the created complexity, and see if that might lead you to more admiration of the beauty of God. And if you're here today and maybe you feel worthless, you know, maybe you feel like I'm just, I, I, do, I feel like a collocation of random atoms. I want to tell you this morning, based on Genesis 1, that you are image of God. You are infinitely precious image of God. There is a rock-solid glory and significance to you. There's a reason why God puts you in this world. And maybe some final application is go find out what that is. Because God who created the world came into the world in the person of Jesus. The ideal became real. And he hung on a cross to, to redeem your soul and to redeem your body and to give you a purpose for living. And so I want to just encourage you to go out and find out what that is. You are molecules and you are a beautiful creature and you are the image of God. You reflect God and there's a reason for your life. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Genesis 1 and God, I feel a little bit uh, out of my element when I, when I talk about science, but I pray, Lord, that some of the things that we learned here, the framework that Genesis gives us about the value of science, uh, about the limits of science, and about the, the clues of science might help us, Lord, to uh, Lord, use our brains a, a little bit more carefully. To, God, I pray that, you would, that we'd be encouraged, those of us who do science, to do our work well to make the world a better place. I pray that all of us, God, would, would take science and faith, would take the book of nature and also the book of, of creation and learn uh, who we really are. God, we are complex and we are valuable. God, the world is going somewhere and you give us a big picture of reality and we need that. And so I pray that we would live into that and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.